Turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. We're going to start in verse 16. Matthew 28, starting in verse 16. This is just after the cross and crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would bless your word to us as your hearers, that your spirit would be at work helping us to understand who you are, that we would understand our Lord, that we would understand what it means that you are one in three, that you are one God, one being, one substance, and three eternally equal persons, equal in power and in glory. Father, we pray that you would help us to see and trust and understand your word and what it says about you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning I start a series on the Trinity and one of the questions that often comes up is why, why do a series on the Trinity? What practical import does the doctrine of the Trinity have? How does the Trinity help me become a better person? How does it help me live a better Christian life? I mean, those are the kinds of questions you immediately get. And it demonstrates a cultural bias. I mean, we're all products to some degree of our culture and our evangelical culture, and we all tend to wonder, every time we come to a text of Scripture, if you're honest, I don't care how squared away theologically you are, if you're honest, every time you come to a text of Scripture, every time you come to a sermon, you're always wanting to know, how does it apply to me? What do I do with it? How does this make me a better Christian? And I'm not saying that's a terrible question. I'm just saying that we've come to believe that ethics, i.e. what we do, how we live, is actually the central article of the Christian life or Christian faith. Contemplating the Lord, just mere contemplation of who He is, thinking about Him is seen as a luxury, a sideshow, something maybe theologians or seminary professors or academics do. At best, though, a means, if I ever engage in it, at best a means to help me live as a better person. But my contention is, my contention is that contemplating the Lord, thinking about Him, knowing Him, worshiping Him, 
should be our chief end and greatest joy. Should be. In other words, I'm contending that the Christian life is centrally about knowing the Lord. Not about what you do. Not about how you behave. But about knowing who he is. Is it not what Jesus said in John 17, 3? Listen to Jesus' own words in John 17, 3. And this is eternal life. That you would keep the commandments. Nope. That you would live a good Christ-honoring life. Nope. And this is eternal life. That they know you. They know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. They know you. They know your son whom you sent. But who is God? See, who is he? That's why we're taking on this series. We want to know our triune Lord. The Lord, this is our central contention, has revealed himself as triune because he is. One and three, three and one. He's revealed himself as that because that's who he is. And it is our privilege and our duty Did you hear that? Our privilege and our duty and our joy to know him as he has revealed himself in Holy Scripture. And here's what we're going to do in this series. We're going to look at every New Testament author. I did not say every New Testament book. Every New Testament author. And we're going to discover how every New Testament author believed in the Trinity, taught the Trinity, I'm not going to come at this from the angle of systematic theology where I just start with propositions and then I argue them out with proof texts. I'm not saying that's wrong. I think systematic theology is entirely helpful, and I will do some of that kind of systematizing of the whole Bible to understand, because you cannot understand specific texts if you do not let Scripture interpret Scripture and systematize those to understand what God is saying overall. I get that, and I'm going to do that, but I'm trying to come at this from the angle of helping you understand how every New Testament witness, how the apostles, if you will, saw God in every book. So you'll get a little bit of a New Testament survey while we walk through this series at the same time. And here's what I want you to understand. Your mind will be pushed. It will. You will be pushed. I, have, I want to make no apologies for pressing your mind to think, to even make your head hurt. Okay? I, I mean, how can you think about God and your mind not hurt a little? Don't feel bad if you conclude after a sermon, this is beyond my comprehension. I just can't wrap my mind around this. Do not feel bad. If that's happened, I have achieved my end. If you come up to me afterwards and say, I finally comprehend God and all who he is, then either you misunderstood me or I failed in my job. So so don't feel bad if you leave going, man, my head is going to pop. I can't wrap my mind around God. You shouldn't be able to wrap your mind around him. You ought to be able to know, to understand what he says here in his word. But understand, even at this level, he is only, as Calvin said, lisping to us. He's baby-talking us. We know what we know about him truly, but we never know what we know about him exhaustively. We can never wrap our minds around all that is true of him. You cannot understand Christianity 
if you do not know God as Trinity. Do you just hear my claim? You cannot understand Christianity if you do not know God as Trinity. The church has always confessed this doctrine as biblical. The church has sung this doctrine and publicly confessed this doctrine since her beginning. Now, I'm going to show you that in the first century by using the New Testament. I can show you that in the later part of the first century by using, for example, the Didache, which is an extra-biblical book that was used as somewhat of a church manual, where they're baptizing in the same Trinitarian name in the end of the first century. But I'll just use the New Testament for that purpose. But you can see in the second century, in the third century, in the fourth and fifth century, and on through the church that we've always confessed the Trinity. And each week what we intend to do is bring into the worship service a historic church confession on the Trinity so that you can see not only the Trinity in Scripture, but you can see that the church has interpreted the Scripture this way for 2,000 years. It's, under, it's, it's so important to understand that if the best minds in Christianity have understood the Bible this way for 2,000 years, then it would be a serious exercise in pride for you to suddenly invent a new doctrine. Look, I want you to hear what the Gloria Patri said. Russell read it to you earlier. If you came late, you missed that. But I want you to hear the Gloria Patri. This is a second century hymn. This hymn has been sung in Christianity for 1,800 years. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be world without end. Amen. They've been singing that since the second century. Now my goal in this series is not merely to provide you an apologetic defense of the historical Christian doctrine. That is not my goal. Nor is my goal merely to give you some kind of, encourage some kind of academic inquiry into the Trinity. It's not my goal either. My goal is to lead you in worship of our triune Lord. That's the goal. For the Trinity is not an academic doctrine that we get to toy around with in our studies and pulpits. The Trinity isn't an academic doctrine that we get to be mealy-mouthed about in our pulpits. The Trinity is our Lord and God. And as the Second London Baptist Confession rightly said, following the Savoy Declaration in the 17th century, this is what they said, the Trinity is the foundation, the foundation, the basis of all our communion, all our communion with God, and all our comfortable dependence on him. You can't even commune with the Lord outside of the foundation of the Trinity. If this is true, and it is, then we need to work hard to know him in his word to the extent that our finite and fallen minds can. I want to warn you, your mind is finite. If you didn't know that already, there's your, there's your upfront warning. My mind is finite. Your mind is finite. We can never, in this life or the next, fully comprehend God. When you get to heaven, your mind will still be finite. You will still be a creature. He will still be the creator. He will still blow your mind for eternity. Hear that? You, but you are also fallen. Your mind isn't just finite, it's fallen, which means that we tend to pervert the truth of Scripture. So we have to work hard as a Christian community to understand the Word of God together 
as Scripture interprets Scripture. And know that even as we do, our best efforts, our purest efforts, are always going to have some mixture of error until we meet the Lord. So when you meet the Lord, you will finally know him truly without any error, but you still won't know him fully. So I've chosen this Great Commission as a starting place to know the doctrine of the Trinity. The Great Commission it seems like a strange place because you think if I'm going to go read Matthew 28, 16 through 20, and you walk in not knowing we're doing a series on the Trinity, and I start there, you think he's going to teach us about missions this morning. But that's actually not where I'm going this morning. I'm beginning with the Great Commission's command to be baptized, and I'm doing that because your Christian life started at baptism. You might say, well, I believed, and years later I was baptized. Okay, well, that wasn't supposed to be how it happens, right? So your Christian life visibly starts with your baptism. You believe, you repent, you're baptized. That's where it starts, and so I want to start where your Christian life began. Baptism is, if you will, the visible beginning of our covenantal relationship, like you're in a marriage covenant, but our covenant relationship with our triune Lord. Baptism is the beginning of that. And I want to address our baptism by looking at two questions. Okay, here's the first question. What is baptism? What is it? I'm going to handle that quickly. I'm not going to give you an exhaustive doctrine on baptism this morning. Just be quick to get you into the second question, which is my primary question. In whose name were we baptized? In whose name were we baptized? Now I want to deal with the first question first. What is baptism? What is it? Look at Matthew 28, 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. Jesus had risen from the dead. You know he's been crucified. He's risen from the dead, and he directed the disciples to go to this mountain in Galilee. So they went, and he said he would come there to teach them. And when they saw him, notice their response. They worshiped him. And Jesus receives that worship. You guys catch that? They worship him, and Jesus receives that worship. That isn't an incidental comment. I'll drive into that actually more next week, but I, I want you to hear that's not an incidental comment. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. I can give you an example of some. Thomas. You guys have heard the story of Thomas, right? He doubts. that It wasn't unusual for the apostles to doubt. They were blown away by all of this. You could understand why they would be. They just saw a man walk out of his grave, resurrected in all his glory. Of course, they're blown away. Some doubted. And look, verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Astounding statement because he's just declared to them that he's the Danielic son of man. He's the son of man from Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, whom the ancient of days comes and gives all authority in heaven and earth over to him. That's what he's referencing there. He is the king of kings. He is the messianic king they waited to come. He is the one who rules over all of heaven and all of earth. That means he rules over everything. And look what he goes on to say. Go therefore, knowing I rule everything, here's my command for you, what we call the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always 
to the end of the age. So Jesus is worthy of worship. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Son of Man prophesied in Daniel 7, to whom the Ancient of Days has given authority and dominion over all things. And what's his command? His command is, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe or obey all that I've commanded you. Now, I want you to hear this because it's important. Um, when you come to this passage, a lot of guys want to say, well, see, see there's, there's a main verb and there's three participles, and that's right. There's a main verb and three participles. The main verb is make disciples. The participles are helping the verb, if you will, okay? Main verb, and helping the verb along is these participles. Main verb is make disciples. Three participles, go, baptize, teach. Okay, those three participles. And people will say, see, now what's happening here is you translate participles as, while you're going, make disciples, right? And the problem with that is, is they say go has no command to it. Uh, now, this is very technical grammar. You can check my work if you really are into this. But go is a participle of attendant circumstance. That means go attends the circumstance of the main verb. The main verb make disciples is a command or an imperative. Go, that participle, attends the circumstance, command, of the main verb. Follow me? So go is also a command. Go and make disciples. Listen, Jews weren't like waiting to go on vacation to other parts of the world to make disciples. They had to be commanded to go to other parts of the world to make disciples. Go and make disciples. Now you have two other participles. Make disciples, main verb. Baptizing, that's the, next, the second participle. That's the means. And teaching, the means. How do you make disciples? You baptize them and you teach them to obey. That's how you do it. That's the means through which you do the making of disciples. And I want to look at the first means is what I want to look at today. What does he say to do is the first means. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Baptizing them. If you're making disciples of all nations, you begin with baptizing them. He does not mean that you baptize them prior to preaching the gospel nor prior to them believing. There have been people in history who have argued that. That would be odd to go into a new nation and start dunking them in the water, Right? You might start a war that way of some sort. He means that you preach the gospel, they come to faith, and you baptize them. We can see that pattern clearly in the book of Acts. Then after you've baptized them, you teach them to obey everything he's commanded. So preaching, profession, and baptism precede being instructed in obedience to all the Lord's commands. That's important, folks. You do not start by getting people to obey the Lord. You start proclaiming the gospel to them. When they convert, you baptize them, and then you teach them to obey the Lord. If you want to teach them anything about the Lord's law prior to them converting, teach them the Lord's law and hold it up to them as a mirror that demonstrates to them that they cannot please God in and of themselves. And then point them to Jesus who did. But what are they baptized in? Notice they're baptized in something. Baptizing them in or into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We baptize people in the name of the Father, of the Son, 
and of the Holy Spirit. And the idea of being baptized in a name is not referring to authority. He's not saying that you baptize them with the authority of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's not what he means by the name. When you're baptized in a name, you're being brought into vital union with the one whom that name represents. You're being baptized in them. You're being united to them. In fact, look at Romans chapter 6. Keep your hand here in Matthew 8, 28, sorry. And look at Romans chapter 6. If you don't have time to turn there, it's okay. I want to read from that. Do you not know, Paul says, do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus, who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? In other words, what Paul will say later in Galatians 2.20, we've been crucified with Christ. He's talking about spirit and water baptism here. They, they don't so easily delineate those two things in the New Testament like we do now. You've been baptized into his death. Now look what he says. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him, notice the parallel, baptism, united with him. If we're united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. See, you're being marked off as belonging to the one in whose name you were baptized. You're being identified with that name. You belong to him. Your life is not your own. You've been bought with a price. You've been renamed. You had a name, whatever that was your whole life, and then when you go into baptism, you get a new name, the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You're his now. Your life has ended when you went under the waters of judgment, if you will, with Christ and were crucified with him. You came up out of the waters born again, resurrected, a new person. You might say, the water didn't do that. I know that. The water is a picture of what the Holy Spirit has done in you through the proclamation of the gospel. But that's what you're picturing there. You've been renamed. You're receiving the sign of being in the covenant of the one who is named. You are the possession of the covenant people or the covenant people, the one in whose name you've been baptized. Think about a, a wedding. You go to a wedding. The bride and groom covenant, groom covenant together. And when they covenant together, they give each other a sign. They give this ring as a sign that I, I've covenanted with this person. I belong to them and they belong to me. Well, God gives signs with his covenants to show you belong to him and he belongs to you. In Abrahamic covenant, he gives them circumcision. In the new covenant, he, primarily, he gives them baptism. I, you belong to me I belong to you. We were baptized so that we'd be marked out as those who trust in Christ, as those who are disciples of the crucified and resurrected Jesus. That's not simply a formula in Matthew that we just repeat. We don't just repeat it like some kind of formulaic thing. I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Like it's a formula. Yes, we have said that throughout church history. We can see it in Matthew. We can see it in the Didache. We can see it in every century of church history that when they baptize, they tend to baptize and say the statement, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But don't think of that as just some formula that's stated. It's trying to communicate to you an incredibly important reality. This is the speaking of the name of the one to whom you belong and to whom you're united and for whom you live and who you follow. And that begs my second question. In whose name were we baptized? 
See, that's what baptism is, be united to him. Picture is that. But in whose name were we baptized? In other words, to whom do we belong? Who do you belong to? See, with whom are we identified in baptism? With whom are we in covenant? Whose people are we? Who are we disciples of? It will not do to say that you're just some disciple of some generic God you don't know who he is. You were baptized in the name of a very specific God, the only living and true God, the one who is, and there is no other. So it matters. You're saying you follow this God, that you belong to this God, that your life is lived for this God, that your whole mind and heart is set apart for this God. Who are you in covenant with? Look at the second part of Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Now here's who you're being baptized in the name of. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Notice that first part. Baptizing them in the name. It's singular. One being. One God. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit. You are baptized in the name, singular, one being, one God, one substance. It's important that we note that there is one name and that we're, that we're baptized into. That's because there's one God. Don't you hear that? Neither the Old Testament nor the New Testament teaches polytheism. That means poly, many, theism, God, right? Like politics, poly, many, ticks, bloodsuck. No, that's not what that means. <laughs> okay, but you, right? Polytheism. Neither the, sorry. Neither the Old Testament nor the New Testament teaches polytheism. These are not three gods. There are not greater gods and lesser gods. There is one God, all others are mere pretenders. They're all false gods. Jesus and his apostles believed in one God. Did, did you catch that? Jesus was and is a monotheist. I, I know it's hard for us to stop and wrap our minds around that. We don't just think about something so simple as your Lord is a monotheist. He's not a polytheist, so polytheism is not okay. He's a monotheist. He believes in one God. Jesus worships one God. Think about how Jesus responded to Satan when he was tempted. Keep your hand in Matthew 28 and go back to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. It's an important passage to understand Jesus' understanding of God. Because Jesus is the one giving the great commission, so we better understand God, how Jesus understands God, when we understand Jesus' great commission. Look what he says in the third temptation he faces in Matthew 4, 8. Again, the devil, Matthew chapter 4, verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, and he's going to quote from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. You know why you worship 
the Lord your God and serve him only because he is God and there is no other. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13, where Jesus quotes from, also Jesus is highly aware of the verse 4 in Deuteronomy 6. You know what that is? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. It's called the Shema. It's what we say about him. What Jesus is saying is, Satan, I believe the call. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. I worship only one God. That's the only God you worship. One God. The Lord is one. Him only shall you worship and serve. It isn't okay, folks, when people serve and worship a God different from the God of the Bible. It isn't okay. It's idolatry. It's abhorrent. It's sin. It's damning. And it's cruel for you to never point it out. Cruel. Cruel, you're going to damn souls to hell because you are afraid people won't like you? Instead of telling them the truth? You're going to let the name of the, Lord be, name of the Lord be dishonored because of a kind of reputation you want to have? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jesus believed in the one God of the Old Testament, the creator of all things is one. During the Reformation, I think the Baptists in England, in England summed up beautifully the one God revealed in Scripture. Now, I would say the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists did as well, but the Baptists had 30 more years to improve on it, um, and so they did. And listen to what they said in chapter 2 of their confession. This is all biblical language or a summing up of biblical language about our one God. The Lord our God is but one living and true God whose subsistence is in and of himself. In other words, he's say. He is of no other. He's self-existent. Nobody created him. He always has been, always will be, always is. That's why God can name himself, I am. He's of himself. He's infinite in being and perfection. He's not finite. You can't measure him. Whose essence his essence, his substance, who he is, cannot be comprehended by any but himself. You know, that's why when you look at 1 Corinthians 2 and Paul says, the Spirit searches the Lord and only the Spirit really knows him because he can't be comprehended by anybody but himself. A most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts. In other words, he doesn't, you know, he's not broken up in like, here's the love part, here's the holiness part, here's the justice part, here's the father part, here's the son part, here's the spirit part. He doesn't have parts, no body. He isn't a human. And he doesn't have passions. In other words, he's not a God with mood swings. Aren't you thankful? Who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, unchanging, immense, eternal, without beginning or end, incomprehensible. They've already told you that and they're telling it to you again. You cannot wrap your mind around him fully. Almighty, Every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own, immutable, unchanging, and most righteous, just will for his own glory, most loving, 
most gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, forgiving transgression and sin, the rewarder of those who diligently seek him, and withal most just and most terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. This is our God. And Jesus, Jesus, was not willing to worship any other. Yet look at Matthew 28, 17. Because we learned something about Jesus that we've been learning through Matthew, um, and then next week we'll look at more intensely. And when they saw him, that's the disciples, saw the resurrected Lord Jesus, they worshiped him. We find out that Jesus allows worship of himself. He will not worship any other but the Lord our God. But he allows worship of himself. How can that be? Because he's the God-man. As man, he perfectly fulfills everything Adam failed to, perfectly fulfills everything Israel failed to, perfectly fulfills everything you and I fail to. But he's also God, and so worthy of our affection and worship. Now don't ask me, because I'm not preaching a series right now on Christology, how can Christ be fully God and fully man, and how does this union of the two natures in one person work? I don't know. I mean, that's another one to just make your head split open trying to think about. But he allows worship himself. Further, look at Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and said, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. In other words, he not only allows worship himself, he says he has all authority in heaven and earth. And now look at his promise in Matthew 28, 20. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In other words, that's the promise that Yahweh, the Lord, gives to Moses and to Joshua and to Gideon. This is the promise of the Lord who created the heavens and the earth, who rules all things, who covenanted with Abraham and who covenanted with Moses and who covenanted with David. And Jesus takes that role of being the divine authority over heaven and earth and of being the divine presence among his people, he takes that role to himself. Jesus accepts worship. Jesus claims authority over all creation. Jesus takes the promise of Yahweh, saying to be present with them, even as Yahweh was in the Old Testament, to himself. How can Jesus do that? Because Jesus is clearly indicating to you that he is divine. He's God. So is Jesus the one God of the Old Testament? Yes. Yes, he is. But notice in whose name he commands you to be baptized. In the name, singular. In the name, singular, of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Now notice a couple of things the text does not say. It does not say baptizing them in the names, plural, at an S there, names of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It is not teaching three names, but one name. Further, note the text does not say baptize in the name of the Father, of the Father, Son, comma, Son, and comma, Holy or comma, and Holy Spirit. In other words, leaving off the, the, the. It doesn't do that either. 
These are not three separate beings here, but one threefold being. It's fascinating because Jesus has listed each of these persons under one name, but each with a definite article. If you don't know what a definite article is, the, that's a definite article. An indefinite article is a or an, okay? They don't have, in, uh, they don't have really indefinite articles in the Greek. We just add them in English. But the is a definite article, and he puts it in there. It is of the, the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. In other words, Jesus is making a distinction between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Yes, he's sa- yet he's saying they're all included in that one name. The grammar here is arguing against the idea that this one God was the Father, then he became the Son, and then he became the Holy Spirit. He's not saying that these are three historical modes of revelation of a one-person God. In other words, he's not saying that he was the Father in the Old Testament, and then the New Testament he becomes the Son, and then, then at Pentecost he becomes the Spirit. He's not saying that. He's saying these are three eternally distinct persons subsisting in one being or name. He's saying that you're baptized into this one threefold name. One God, three eternally distinct persons. You can see that on display in the Theophany in Matthew 3. I'm going to turn back there. I encourage you to look there as well. Matthew 3 and verse 16. Jesus comes to John the Baptist to be baptized. John the Baptist's baptism is a repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He's called Israel too. John the Baptist, as you know, isn't a very popular man. Um, he has huge crowds, but in, he's quite unpopular with religious leaders because he keeps calling them a brood of vipers, right? Never goes over well. That's to call somebody the offspring of Satan, right? So all the religious leaders in Israel come out. John the Baptist looks at them and says, who warned you, brood of vipers, to flee from the wrath to come, right? <laughs> it's not very winsome. So John the Baptist also points out Herod's sexual sin and eventually is beheaded, But as he's out baptizing as the last Old Testament prophet, and you'll say, but he's in the New Testament. Yes, but he is a prophet before the new covenant begins. He's dead before Jesus even cuts the new covenant. So he counts, if you will, as an old covenant or Old Testament prophet. As the last one, he's calling Israel to repentance. As the Elijah to come that's prophesied in Malachi 4, he's come to call Israel to repentance, to prepare the way for the Lord, the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus. And he's having them be baptized baptism and repentance for the forgiveness of their sins. And when Jesus comes up and says, I want to be baptized, John the Baptist objects. Why? Because he says, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. In fact, Jesus has no sin to repent of or seek forgiveness for. So why are you getting baptized? And Jesus' response is, that's to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, God has sent a prophet to Israel calling Israel to be baptized. And so I keeping everything God has called Israel to do and going to do what God has called Israel to do through John the Baptist so I can fulfill all righteousness, so I can keep the law on Israel's behalf. So John the Baptist agrees, and we see this. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, now notice, here's Jesus in the water, coming up out of the water. Here's Jesus, one person, And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. That's a theophany, folks. It doesn't mean the Holy Spirit's not really a dove. You're not going to get to heaven and see a dove flying around. 
That's a theophany. It's talking about the Holy Spirit's coming. The Holy Spirit descended like a dove and coming to rest on him. It's anointing him as the Messiah, as Isaiah 61 is promised, as the Messiah who is carrying out the ministry. The Spirit comes and rests on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now who else can declare, this is my beloved Son except the Father? In fact, the Father. If you're not a father, right? I mean, excuse me, if, if you have a son, you're a father. If you don't have a son, you're not a father. You, you understand how simple that is? The father has always been the father because he's always had a son. Always, eternally. The father and the son, and here they all are. The father, the son, and the Holy Spirit together in one scene. You have all three persons acting at one time. This scene is nonsense if the persons are different revelatory modes of some one person God. It doesn't even make sense. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Spirit is not the Father nor the Son. You guys can see that clearly, right? Yet they're one God. They're under one name. They can all appear together in one scene in a theophany with the incarnate Christ at the center of it and still be under one name. You're baptized in the name of these three persons. And these persons are equal in power and glory. Why? Why? They're necessarily equal in power and glory because they are one God. They're not parts of one God. It's not like you have one God who you divide into a pie of three, the Father part, the Son part, the Spirit part. They're one God. What is true of the one God is true of the three distinct purpose, persons, Sorry, for they are one being, one substance, one nature. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Jesus understood this and taught this as the resurrected Christ, himself divine. He declared there is one God and three persons, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, equal in power and glory. That's why you're baptized in the name of them all. And because we're speaking of the eternal and unchanging God, we are saying he always has been and always will be one God, three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, equal in power and glory. And when you were baptized... You're identified with, united to, our triune Lord. Listen to how New Testament commentator William Hendrickson said it. When through the preaching of the word, a person has been brought from darkness into light and confesses the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to be the one object of his faith, hope, and love, then... The sacrament of baptism is the sign and seal that God the Father adopts him as his son and heir, that God the Son washes his sins away by his precious blood, and that God the Holy Spirit dwells in him and will sanctify him, actually imparting to him that which he objectively already has in Christ, and at last bringing him from the church militant, the church on earth, into the church triumphant, the church in heaven. Now, you might object, but the word Trinity doesn't appear in, here in this text. The word Trinity doesn't appear anywhere else in the Bible. I hear that objection all the time. Have you heard that objection? And you're right. The word Trinity does not appear here in this text. I'm not going to magically exegete it into the text. 
And it doesn't appear anywhere else in the Bible. That word does not appear. But I want you to understand that the term Trinity just means threeness. Hear that? Or that God is threefold. God is one in three. That's what's being captured by the word Trinity. Objecting to the use of the word Trinity because that specific word is not in the Bible is literally, literally like objecting to someone asking you how many objects are listed in the one name in Matthew 28, 19, and you respond with, there are three objects listed, and they say, the number three isn't in the text, you're being unbiblical. That's what they're doing when they deny the word the Trinity, because not in the Bible. It's a summation. How many objects? Well, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Well, can't you count? How many is that? Three. Unbiblical. You said threeness, Trinity. Under one name. It's important to understand, folks, the church didn't pick the word Trinity because it enjoyed monkeying around with the doctrine of God and coming up with new theological terms. The church came up with that doctrinal language to define the boundaries of what the Bible affirms and what the Bible denies. Why did they need to do that? Why? Because Satan loves to send his emissaries as angels of light. Do you hear that? He sends preachers out there who are wolves in sheep's clothing, and they confuse the sheep. As Satan has always done, from the time of the garden, false teachers now do using biblical language and twisting its meaning. That's exactly what Satan does in the garden. That's exactly what Satan does with Jesus. Go look at the temptations of Satan with Christ. He, Satan literally tempts him by quoting scripture and twisting its meaning. So it won't do to say to someone, do you believe in one God? They will say yes. But the question is, do they affirm all that the Bible affirms and deny all that the Bible denies about that one God? You can ask them, do you believe in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? And they will say yes. But do they affirm all the Bible affirms and deny all the Bible denies about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? Do they believe that there is one God in being or substance, and three eternally distinct persons who are equal in power and glory. That's why we use terminology like the Trinity. It's just shorthand as a way to sum up all of what the Bible says about who God is and who he's not. Now, there are two general tendencies of these false teachers. First, there's the modalists. Might have heard of the modalists. This is started first by Sibelius became called Sabellianism in the early church. Later, it's called modalism after the belief of what it is. What is it? They will affirm belief. Modalists will affirm belief in one God. My guess is most Christians, ignorantly, are a kind of modalist. I don't mean they're damned and unsaved. Don't hear me wrong. Don't turn the volume up too loudly on what I'm saying here. I mean they're ignorant, and they have to be reinformed. Now, how do you know the difference between someone who is unsaved and embracing error and someone who's saved and embracing error? Here's the difference. When the person who's saved hears the word of the Lord and their error is corrected, they repent of their previous belief and affirm the new truth. Okay. Do you understand the distinction there? We all started off with all kinds of error, did we not? And we're all maturing in our understanding. All of us. Most of us, I think, in America are generally modalists because most of us are Unitarians. We tend to think 
about God as this sort of being that's there. And then when we start to get into Jesus and the Holy Spirit, we get confused and aren't sure quite what to do with them. And so we tend to start to say, well, the, the, the Father is God. You know, that's what the modal will say. The Father is God. The Son is God and the Holy Spirit's God. But, but they'll say, you know, that these three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are just some kind of historical manifestation of God. A motive is revealing himself to us. He's not eternally one God and three distinct persons, equal in power and glory. Rather, he's manifested himself in three historical modes. First, he was the Father, then he was the Son, now he's the Holy Spirit. That's a different God, folks. It's a different God. That God didn't create anything. He doesn't preserve anything, and he won't save anyone because he doesn't exist. And it matters that people know that. Second, we might think of the Arians. The Arians are the other big tendency. They'll affirm belief in one God. There was a man named Arius, quite popular. He was actually um, the megachurch pastor of his day. You heard, you've heard of St. Nicholas, Santa Claus, who later morphs into Santa Claus, unfortunately. The, the, the legend has it that St. Nicholas, he was a bishop, incidentally, in the fourth century, who showed up at the Council of Nicaea and saw Arius and punched him in the mouth. And so St. Nicholas was famous and has been famous throughout history for giving gifts to poor children and punching heretics in the mouth. That's what he's known for, right? That's not Santa Claus like you know him, but there you go. So I don't know if it's true that St. Nicholas did that. I hope it is. But anyway, <laughs> Arius, was, Arius was a tall, good-looking, influential, megachurch pastor in the fourth century. They had him back then quite bright, and he argued for a particular doctrine that became known as Arianism. He affirmed belief in one God. He affirms that the Father is God, but he denies that the Son and the Holy Spirit are God. He says the Son and the Holy Spirit might be like God, but they're not one substance with him. But we're saying we affirm that God is one being or substance, eternally existent in three distinct persons or equal in power and glory. Anything else, anything less is sub-biblical and delivers you, frankly, to a false God, a God who cannot save because he is no God at all. And if you don't know that that's important, then you need to go read about the life of Athanasius. Arius gained ascendancy in the Roman Empire, in the church and in the state, and brought vicious persecution to persecution to Trinitarians. And Athanasius, like one man on his own, stood against this. And folks, they argued over a word you've probably never even heard of, homoousia. And I was like, what is that? Homo, same. You've heard that before. Usia, substance. Same substance. They argued over that. Arius liked the word homoousius. Homoi, similar usia, substance. So Arius would get awfully close. Well, the Son and the Holy Spirit are a similar substance, but not the same substance. Not the same. And so you would say that oi versus u. Homo, homo, usia, homoi, usia. Hear the difference? That oi versus u is a, it's what you call a diphthong. You two, put two vowels together and they make a sound. Oi, u, okay? You say the whole Roman Empire hung on a diphthong in the fourth century. How about that? All right? 
as Athanasius stood against the world and the world against Athanasius over those letters. He was in exile for 30 years, folks, before he finally won the day because he knew that Arius' God is a false God, one who cannot save because he is no God at all. Folks, our baptism is in the name of our triune Lord. Listen to what Scott Swain, Dr. Scott Swain, president of Reformed Theological Seminary Orlando, Florida, says with regard to Trinitarianism and baptism. He says this, this glorious name identifies the true and living God, and, it, and because it is the name in which, into which we are baptized, constitutes, this name, Father, the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, constitutes our only comfort in life and death. Not only does the doctrine of the Trinity identify God, it also illumines all of God's words, turns the light on the Bible, enabling us to receive more clearly the wonders of the Father's purpose in creation, of Christ's incarnation, and of the Spirit's indwelling. All things are from the Trinity, through the Trinity, and to the Trinity. And so in the sublime light of the Trinity, we see all things in a new light. This Trinitarian doctrine ought to boggle your mind. It ought to humble you. Our triune God is one God, one being in substance, eternally existing in three distinct persons who are equal in power and glory. They share the whole substance. They aren't divided in, dividing God into three parts. God is not the sum of the three persons added up to make a whole. They're each the whole. How does that work? I have no idea. Not one bit of an inkling of a clue the distinct person of the Father is eternally God. The distinct person of the Son is eternally God. The distinct person of the Spirit is eternally God, and God is one. You should realize that God is beyond your comprehension. He is God. He is eternal. He is infinite. He is immense. He is unchanging. He is simple. He is one. He is three. He is trinity in unity and unity in trinity. And you're a creature, a man. You're temporal, finite, limited, changing, made up of body, parts, and passions. You will never comprehend the Lord exhaustively. You may understand him truly in what he condescends to list to us in his word, but you will never understand him exhaustively. Never. Even as we walk through the witness of every New Testament author on the Trinity over the next several weeks, you'll find yourself more confident you know the truth as revealed in Scripture, and yet at the same time with that confidence that you know the truth as revealed in Scripture with regard to God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, who are one God, at the same time, you will find that you are more humbled by how much greater God is than your own mind. Gregory of Nazianzus, in his sermon on baptism, his sermon on baptism, we call it Horatio on baptism, his sermon on baptism was given January 6th, 381 A.D. He preaches a sermon reflected on the Trinity and what the Trinity did to his own mind. And, and incidentally, it's a great sermon if you want to read it. I, I've read it. It's great. It's long. What the Trinity did to his own mind. And, and what I think the Trinity ought to do to our minds, and, and Gregory says this, in what I think is one of the best statements ever written on the Trinity, and really is the theme for what I want to talk about the next several weeks, and what I hope, at the end of this, you're basically saying to yourself, in summary, here's what he says, 
No sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them than I'm carried back to the one. When I think of any one of the three, I think of them as the whole, and my eyes are filled, and the greater part of what I am thinking of escapes me. Behold your God, unity and trinity, and trinity and unity. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would continue to reveal the truth of who you are in your word to us, that we would see you as one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we would trust in and rejoice in you, that we would know that who you are eternally, is our only foundation of communion with you and of comfortable dependence upon you. We're thankful for your word, for the fact that you have revealed yourself most clearly in your son Jesus, and we pray that as we look at him and what his apostles have said about him throughout the New Testament, we would more clearly understand who you are as Father and Son, and Holy Spirit, our one triune Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.